Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to meet together, learn from your word. Just pray that we could each learn. Just pray be with me. Allow me to share the words you'd have for me to speak. Just pray that I could clearness of mind and relate your words to us as a congregation. In your name we pray. Amen. If you would, you could turn to Luke chapter 22 for scripture passages. Luke chapter 22, beginning with verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve, and he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and coveted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. And dropping down to verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee, both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock will not crow this day, before thou hast thrice, thou shalt thrice deny me, deny that thou knowest me. Several months ago, I read this passage in my devotions, and two verses stood out to me. Verse 3, then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And also verse 31, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. And a title came to my mind, Satan and the Disciples. So that's our title this morning. It could also be titled, My Soul Beyond Thy Guard. As Christians, we also are disciples of the Lord. Is Satan at work with us? as he was with the twelve? And I believe that we all know the answer is yes. These twelve were chosen to be Satan, to be Jesus' closest followers. Were they superhuman? Were they immune to Satan's attacks? I think we see here they were not. But they were sent out to preach the gospel. They were given power to do miracles. And yet, they were no more immune to temptation than we are. Satan did not consider them a lost cause because they were Jesus' special twelve. In fact, he likely worked extra hard on them. So we take a look at these men. First, we notice Judas there in verse 3. Judas, we understand to have been the treasurer for the disciples. But then we read that he was a thief who dipped his hand into the bag for his own benefit. So the question comes to our mind, was Judas always bad? What was his heart's condition when Jesus called him to be a disciple? Did Jesus call a shady character to be one of his special twelve. We don't 
really know the answer to these questions? My belief would be, and I would suggest, that he was a godly man when Jesus called him, who along the way left, along the way yielded to temptations. And this is a warning for us not to yield to temptation. Then we see the other 11. When Jesus said there in verse 31, that Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. The you is, mentioned, is in a plural sense, I would understand. And if you look at some other translations, that would bring that idea out a little more. If my understanding is correct, in the King James, you is plural and the is singular. Don't hold me to that, but I think I heard something like that already. But these 11 desired to be faithful to their, and loyal to their Lord. They had no desire to turn their backs on him. They were not where Judas was, looking for an opportunity to betray him. I don't believe they had such hidden sins that Judas had. He was a thief. But due to misunderstanding Jesus' purpose on life, purpose in life, and their own preconceived ideas about what the kingdom of heaven would look like, they were vulnerable because they were not ready for what was coming. Looking at Peter more specifically here, Jesus had directed the Jesus was talking directly to Peter. Peter was the man to whom Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church. And then pretty much the same in the same conversation, Jesus said, Get thee behind me, Satan. So, Peter was given to saying things sometimes that were not according to God's will. So why did Jesus talk directly to Peter here in verse 31 32? Why wasn't he just talking directly to all the disciples? We'll answer that question later. But we can learn from the disciples. Satan has plans. We can be victorious when Satan tempts us. And we have an advocate with Jesus. And if we fail, we can, with God's help, rise above our failures and live victorious lives despite our past. So our first point this morning I want to look at is, as disciples, we must realize that we have an enemy. First Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Wonder what all was going through Peter's mind when he penned these words. Peter knew from experience that Satan has plans for the disciples. That Satan's looking for an opportunity to get us as disciples to do things that we would have never thought possible. Peter was sure he would never deny his Lord. Yet it only took a couple hours. Peter warns us that Satan goes about as a roaring lion. Now, I don't know a lot about lions. When I see a cat hunt, they kind of stalk around really cautiously. They hide, sit real still, and when the right opportunity comes, they jump out. I did not research lions, yet it seems I know something about when they're going in for the kill, they give a roar. Give a roar, try to get their prey to run so you can get up from the backside. Satan tries to unnerve us, to get us to be more vulnerable for his attacks. 
Satan will use the situations that we face. The situations we face are not necessarily our fault. Sometimes, well, certain situations could be a lack of sleep due to a child that wouldn't sleep at night. And we feel like being grumpy the next day. We encounter contrary people. We might be convinced they're more are very much under the influence of Satan. We may face financial hardships, a sickness. These are all things that, situations that may well not be our fault, but situations that Satan can use to unnerve us, to get us to give up on God, to get us to fall to his temptations. We are not necessarily Responsible for the situations that we face, unless they're of our own doing. But we are responsible for how we respond to those situations. It was not the disciples' fault that Jesus was captured. But they were responsible. Peter was responsible for denying he ever knew the Lord. The other disciples were responsible for running. So the question may rise in our mind, is everything that we consider bad that we face an attack from Satan? I'm not totally sure. I'm going to say not necessarily. But Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He called it a messenger of Satan. Sometimes the situations we face may be a wake-up call from God to get us back on track. We do see in the account of Job that Satan is at times given the permission to cause bad things to happen to us. And perhaps a lot of the things that we find unpleasant are in one way or another Satan's doings, but we can be sure that God has allowed it to happen also. We'll get a little more later. We live in a fallen world. God has allowed the situation we face for our good. Romans 8.28 says, We know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So maybe our situation is just because we live in a fallen world. Or maybe it is a direct attack from Satan. But God can use these situations for our good. As we mentioned, Satan is looking for vulnerable moments in our lives so that he can come in for the kill. And yes, these situations... We may be vulnerable simply because of the situation we face. If we wanted to get eight hours of sleep and the baby maid only got two, it's not our fault. Not normally anyway, unless we fed them something they shouldn't have eaten. But it's not our fault. But we are vulnerable, a little more so because we are physically weaker. And Satan as a way of capitalizing on these situations. Or perhaps we are vulnerable due to our own previous poor decisions or previous sins that we have not confessed in our lives. Ground we've given up, and now Satan has us going backwards. He's going to push harder. We must keep ourselves in a strong position as it pertains to us. We are not necessarily responsible for the things we face, but we are responsible for how we respond. We need to avoid compromise. Sin will weaken us to temptation. Sin will make that we cannot resist when Satan attacks. Galatians 5.16 says, This I say then, 
walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Verse 17, for the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. The flesh and the spirit are contrary one to the other. If we feed the spirit, we can be in a stronger position to face Satan. If we are not feeding the spirit, if we are not having our daily devotions, but rather compromising in small areas in our lives, we will not be in a position to face temptation and win. Still thinking of the idea of keeping ourselves in a strong position. As much as lies with us, we need to keep ourselves among other believers. Predators try to get the prey away from the group. Perhaps that's why lions roar, to try to scare the group so they scatter so he can have a meal. This is not talking about lions, but if you go to Cabela's in Hamburg, there's a display there. I believe they're called musk ox. Kind of a little cattle-like, cre- kind of cattle-like creature with big, ugly, curved horns. There's a half circle of them, backs to the cliff, and they're facing the pack of wolves. they got a strong position behind them, and they're facing the wolves as a group. One musk ox would not be a match for those wolves. But standing side by side, the wolves cannot, the only access the wolves have to them is at the face. And those musk ox have big, ugly, curved horns that the wolves don't want to deal with. If the wolf would grab one, the others would gore the wolf and the wolf would be done for. The musk ox, as I understand, they travel in herds for protection. Now, they don't necessarily need a cliff behind. They will make a complete circle so they can face the enemy from all angles. And they may stand there for hours in a standoff. But as long as they stand together, they cannot, the wolves cannot break through them. And eventually the wolves give up as long as they stick together. We cannot choose to be alone as Christians. To do so is to put ourselves in a vulnerable situation. And what, But if we are alone due to situations beyond our control, God's grace is sufficient. We think of the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos. He was exiled. I don't know that he had any believers to surround himself with anymore there. Perhaps he did, but he's exiled. I think he was put there to be in more solitary position situation. Sometimes believers are thrown into jail. In these situations, I believe God's grace is sufficient. But we cannot choose such a situation. And thinking on the idea of community, as Bobby said... Bobby mentioned, we need to look for those who are more vulnerable and get them in the circle, help them to, and help them out, help them to face the enemy. Also, I didn't mention that the musk ox will keep the young, and I suppose the weak, in the center of the circle, and they don't even have to face the enemy. They are totally protected with doing nothing. Sometimes you may have to get totally face the enemy, totally rally around and get them in the circle so that they don't have to face so much. Just another thought. Jesus said to the disciples that Satan had desire for them. And we can be sure Satan has desires for us. The disciples did not realize this. 
I don't believe Judas realized what Satan's plans were for his life. I don't believe when he was first called to the, as a disciple, he ever envisioned himself betraying his Lord. But Satan is clever. And Judas allowed himself to fall into sin and did not repent. He thought he could get away with it. And I suppose it started out just pull a little bit of money out one time, just, just one time. But he got away with it. He thought anyway. And eventually it became more and more. To the point that he started looking for more ways to get money into the treasury so he could have more to pull from. He criticized the woman who washed Jesus' feet with the expensive ointment. He wanted that money, that sold, so he could put it in the treasury, so he could put the money in the treasury as the, because he was a thief, as the scripture says. Perhaps he had his percent he thought he could pull out. And the more that came in, the more he could pull out. And he ended up doing the unthinkable when he saw an opportunity to make money. He betrayed Jesus. And it was even his idea. At least, nobody else approached him, to asking him to do it. It does say Satan entered into Judas. So Satan was certainly involved. But Judas took the initiative to go to the leaders and gave them the opportunity. And said, well, perhaps it says in one of the other Gospels, he said, what will you give me to betray him? He was looking for money. And when he was sorry, he committed suicide rather than repent. So that was Judas. We see the results of Satan's desires for Judas. Then there's Peter and the other disciples. They were confident in their own strength. Their hearts were right, so to speak. But they had mental blocks. I say their hearts were right. I put right in quotations. They had their squabbling among themselves. But they were faithful. They did have a desire to be faithful and loyal to their Lord. And I don't know that they had hidden sins like Judas did. But they had mental blocks. They had their own ideas what Jesus was all about. And therefore, they were in no position to handle what was coming. They had not grasped what Jesus had been trying to tell them. They were expecting an earthly kingdom, and they were ready for it. Carrying us chapter Luke 22, which we did not read, but they were arguing among themselves who'd be the greatest in the kingdom. So yes, they did have their faults, so they were... They all wanted to be, have the best positions. After all, they were the disciples. Surely they could get all the best positions in the kingdom. And they were ready for an armed uprising. And most likely they were ready to fight to the death. Jesus warned that Satan desired to sift them as wheat. Now this sifting as wheat is not in a refining sort of way to take wheat and clean it up. That's not what Satan, that's not what Jesus was trying to say that Satan was all about. Believe, when you sift wheat, you beat it up. This past week we combined wheat. For those of you who know what goes on inside a combine, it goes through a rotor, it beats it up, rotor spins several hundred times per minute. And so that wheat goes through there, if it had any feelings whatsoever, it probably felt destroyed. And it's separated. The chaff gets blown out. The straw gets beat up. There's no chance to ever get its life back together again. 
think that's what Jesus was trying to convey, that Satan had desire to do to the disciples. To send them through a combine rotor, so to speak. Beat them up. Hit them with a wind. Make them feel like they had no chance to ever get their life back together again. Now, it's a feeling. It wasn't reality. The things we face are not, do not have to destroy us. Though Satan certainly desires to do so. When Jesus warns that Satan desires to sift them as wheat, it kind of sounds like Job, situation there with Job. Where Satan goes to God, and they have this conversation, and Job desire, and Satan desires to cause Job troubles to get him to turn his, against God. Perhaps it could have been said that Satan desired to sift Job as wheat also. This is a picture of what goes on behind the scenes in the spiritual world. But how did Job respond to his trials? One thing he said was, when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job understood that despite the unpleasant situation he was facing, God could use it as good, and he could come out the other side with stronger character. And we can cling to that, that when we're facing a trial, we can come through it stronger than when we went into it. God has Satan limited, though, in what he can do to us. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, 1 Corinthians 10.13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will, with a temptation, also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. It doesn't leave any room for excuses for us. God will not allow us to be tempted above what we can bear. We cannot say, I couldn't help it. There is always a way of escape for the Christian Now, there is danger in not taking the escape that is given to us. As Satan tempts us, if he can get us to sin just a little bit, so to speak, he's got us started down his, down his path. We have not taken God's path of escape. We have taken Satan's path of compromise. And once we get started in compromise, it gets harder and harder to stop. And that's what Judas faced. He ended up where he probably never intended to go because he yielded to temptation. When we face temptation, it is an opportunity for us to prove Satan wrong. When Satan talked to God about Job, Satan said, in my own words, to God, if you, if you would just give Satan, give Job trouble, he's gonna curse you to your face. And Job was given the opportunity to prove Satan wrong. And while Job did have a few things to learn, I believe he did prove Satan wrong. But how often do we shame God before Satan? Does God have conversations with Satan about us? Does Satan 
tell God that if I go tempt him, if I go tempt her, she's going to fail. How often does God have to admit that Satan's right? Do we take the opportunity to prove Satan wrong? Or do we shame God before Satan? Our enemy Satan is cunning. He has so many different angles he tries. When one doesn't work, he tries another. In Genesis, we read the serpent was more subtle than all the beasts of the field. I think that's a description of Satan. Satan is subtle. He will tempt us when we least expect it. When we least expect it, he might come roaring in like a lion and give a terrifying roar to get us to jump and run so he can attack us. Satan's desire is to attack when we least expect it. But if we expect the unexpected, it will not be unexpected because we are expecting it. (laughs) The tongue twister. So what do I mean? We may not be fully able to anticipate how Satan's going to tempt us, but we can be sure that somewhere along the line, sooner rather than later, Satan is going to tempt us. We, are, we must keep our soul on its guard because there's 10,000 foes arising to draw us away, as the song says. And we, must, we can rest assured that Satan cannot make us do anything. There is no temptation taken us but it's such as a common demand, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. And as Christians, we must never lay our armor down. We must wear our armor and be armed and be ready for the battle so that we are equipped for victory. We must always be ready to face temptation head on. Our armor, the armor of a soldier, protects the front side, not the back side. If we are fleeing, if we turn our If we turn tail and run, we are no longer protected. And we can win. James says in James chapter 4, verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We don't have to run. We can make Satan run. I believe Satan won't waste his time on a prepared believer. But he will be back. Jesus was prepared when he faced Satan in the wilderness. And Satan left him. But it says he left him for a season. And we don't necessarily have any other recorded instances of Satan tempting Jesus. But Satan continued to work on Jesus the rest of his time on earth. We are powerless outside of God's will. We are to submit to God and draw nigh to God. We're only... We can only resist if we have drawn nigh to God. When we are tempted, we need to run to God, 
not away from God. And as we see with the situation there with Job, Satan does create situations in which to tempt us. He attacks us with a situation and then tempts us to respond wrongfully. So that's a look at our enemy, Satan. And as disciples, we must realize that we are in a battle. When we surrendered our lives to the Lordship of Jesus, we declared war on Satan, our old master. We had been his servants. We now have a new master, and our old master is not happy. And there are no conditions of peace in this world, in this war. The war will go on. If we realize this, we are in a better position to face the enemy than what the disciples were. They were oblivious to the battle at hand, and they failed. They were ready for a physical battle, not a spiritual one. We mentioned the Christian's armor a little bit. We turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We'll look at that a little bit more now. Thinking on the idea of living in a state of preparedness. Ephesians 6. We need live in a state of preparedness because we are in a spiritual battle, not a physical one. Ephesians 6, starting with verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now this passage could be a message in itself, and if I remember correctly, Brother Earl did a series of messages, one message for each piece of armor. Well, looking at it just briefly, thinking on the thought of being making sure we're wholly armed, we see having your loins girt about with truth. We need to know the truth so that we will not be deceived. Satan tells us lies. Satan twists the truth just a little bit, and the way it becomes untruth. If we are not familiar with the truth, we can get mixed up when Satan comes with a part truth. So we need to know the truth so we won't be deceived. We see the breastplate of righteousness. Are we living our lives in a way that the enemy cannot get a foothold? Are we living righteous lives? Is there any legitimate accusation that Satan can make against us? God was able to brag to Satan about Job and tell him there's no one, tell Satan there's no one like Job in all the earth. God was able to say that Job was perfect. Are we wearing the breastplate of righteousness? And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The gospel is God's good news to man. Have we allowed and are we allowing God to do a work in our lives? And are we at peace with God and man.
Then we see this, then we see the shield of faith. Faith overcomes doubt. Satan tries to make us doubt. Faith takes God at his word. Faith obeys without understanding. Satan made Eve question God's reasoning for them not being allowed to eat the fruit of that one tree. Satan made, a, made it not make sense. Why you can't eat that fruit? Eve lost faith in God and disobeyed. We don't need to understand everything God says. We just need to obey out of faith. And are we wearing our helmet of salvation? First of all, we are powerless if we have not trusted Jesus as our Savior. And are we working out our salvation? As Philippians 2 verses 12 to 13 says, I guess we won't turn there now, but are we working out our salvation? Are we continuing to choose God's way? We work out our salvation by allowing God to do a work in us, and we become stronger. And then we see the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We had looked at the defensive armor, and are we armed with the offensive weapon. The word of God gives us an offensive weapon. Jesus quoted scripture, the word of God, when he was tempted. The truth, the word of God, allows us to take and retake the territory the enemy may have gotten in our lives. The word of God reveals to us areas that may not be fully surrendered to him. And with the word of God, we can claim those areas and take back enemy territory the enemy has had in our lives. Once again, none of our armor works if we turn and run from the enemy as he desires us to. Now, we do read in Scripture, we are to flee youthful lust. How does that work when I say we should not flee when Satan attacks? There is a difference. We flee temptation by facing the enemy. We don't retreat. We cannot retreat from a position of strength. But we flee from holding our strong position. And we must realize that we are a battleground. Satan hates God and wants to take as many of us with him as he can. I think that perhaps Satan's greatest reason for trying to get us to fall into sin is his hatred of God. Sure, he wants us, but he comes after us out of spite for God. I wonder what we would see if we could see what is going on in the spiritual world. The enemy is attacking us. We can feel that. And God is giving us the tools that we need to be victorious. Are we using those tools? I can't draw real much, so we'll just, that's a hill, or a slope, or whatever. Are we climbing to new heights, or are we sliding down a slippery slope? We could call that hill life. 
Are we climbing the new heights? Are we gaining new heights daily? Or are we going backwards, sliding down a slippery slope? To compromise is to slide down the slope. Sliding down a hill takes little to no effort. It is a default action which requires no action. Which is why we see that people fall deeper and deeper into sin, further and further away from God. If this is where we find ourselves, there is hope. We can do as Peter did when he was sinking into the water and cry out, Lord, help me. Cry out in repentance, realizing that we have not been living our lives according to God's will. And begin to climb to new heights and retake territory. Are we growing in our Christian life? What does growth look like? Are we working out our salvation? Are we loving God more? Sometimes our life might feel like we're going two steps forward and one step back. Or maybe it's five steps forward and four steps back. That is progress. When we take a step back, what do we do? And I believe that as humans who live in the flesh, at times we do we do slip and take a slide back. How do we respond when we do slide backwards? We should repent and get our firm grip on our Christian life and move forward again. Are we moving toward holiness and obedience as we gain and gaining new heights? Are we laying aside the weights that are holding us back so we can climb more easily? And as we're in this battle of life, it does at times seem like an uphill battle. But that's part of climbing to new heights. The enemy gives us resistance, but we can continue to climb up the uphill battle. We don't need to be like the seed on the stony ground that gave up when times got tough. We need to send our roots down and draw strength from a strength greater than ourselves. We can draw strength from God. And we will be prepared for dry seasons with scorching heat. When Satan turns up the heat to try to make us give up, we can draw on a strength greater than ourselves if we turn to God and cry, Lord, help me. We should not think that it's strange, as Peter says, when we face trials. Peter said, 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. We should not think it's strange. We should expect it. We should expect Satan to attack us and tempt us and give us all kinds of resistance. When we face that, we can we are partakers of Christ and his sufferings. Hebrews 3.14 says, For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. We are partakers of Christ because Christ also was tempted. And as we face this battle in life, we need to realize that Ultimate victory will not be fate, will not be attained in this life. 
I don't mean to discourage anybody with that, but to encourage us to expect that there will be a battle. We can and we should have victories in the individual battles that we face. But the war is not won until we leave this world behind. Then we are out of reach of the enemy and we can be crowned victors. We need to stay in the battle as long as we are here on earth. Victory builds on itself. I think it's true in the song, song Yield Not to Temptation, when it says each victory will help you some other, some other victory to win. As we mature, we may find victory easier. Because Satan then has less footholds in our lives. We've had more victories. We've learned to expect more of what Satan's up to, recognize his tactics. And perhaps victory does get easier. If this is what we're experiencing, it is nice. But we must be aware of the danger of ease. We cannot get lax in our spiritual lives because we think things are going easier. We have a very clever enemy. And he might know that he can't, probably won't get us to fall into some gross sin in an instant. Instead, he will come at us with little, little temptations here and there, trying to get a foothold. We can never think that the victory is won here in this earth, nor lay our armor down. We cannot put our armor aside because we think we've gotten to a point of victory. There are many people who are faithful Christians for a time, and maybe a long time, But then, somewhere later in life, they seem to give up the battle. They seem to think at my age, it doesn't matter anymore. Perhaps they think that they can coast into heaven. But how long do we coast uphill? It works for a little bit, but a very little bit. Until we end up in default action and we go backwards. So never give up the battle. As disciples, we must realize that we have an advocate. Jesus walked this earth. And he was tempted like us. Hebrews four fifteen. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In the flesh, Jesus never yielded to temptation. He lived in flesh just like us. He was tempted in all points, like as we are. So yes, he was tempted more than just that one time in the wilderness. I think he probably had daily temptations, just like we do. And temptation was just as real to Jesus as it is to us. And he proved that Overcoming temptation is possible. And we can be encouraged that Jesus, our high priest, understands what we are going through. He can relate to us because he 
Brilliance did himself. And he is ready to answer our cry for help in the moment of need, as says here in Hebrews 2.18. For in that he himself hath suffered, suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. So when we cry out for help in the moment of temptation, Jesus is ready to help us. He understands exactly what we need. We can come boldly to the throne of grace and obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Grace to help, divine influence in our lives, divine favor, divine strength to face the temptation that we are going through. Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17. John 17, verse 15. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for all them, that would include us also, also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Jesus knew what we were going to face. He prayed that we would be kept from evil. In this world, we will face evil. But we can be protected by the truth. We are sanctified. We are made holy and kept holy by the truth. As it says in Proverbs, buy the truth and sell it not. Don't trade the truth for anything. Pilate asked, what is truth? Jesus said, right here, thy word is truth. God's word is truth. Society may destroy things that are normal, things that have been accepted as truth, and develop new strange ideas. They make people scratch their heads and wonder, what is truth? But God's word is unchanging. God's word is the unchanging truth. It gives us something to stand on when the world is shaking. God's truth, God's word, cannot be destroyed. Jesus is interceding on our behalf. Romans 8.34 says, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who even is at the right hand of God, who maketh intercession for us. Jesus is there to send us help. We need, we just all we need to do is ask for it when we are in the battle. Jesus told the disciples to pray that they enter not into temptation when he went to the garden. When he went to the garden to pray, the disciples fell asleep. Are we asleep or are we praying for strength? Jesus told the disciples, the spirit is willing. Believes their spirit is willing. But their flesh is weak. We have a desire to be faithful to the Lord. But do we recognize that in the flesh we are weak? Are we praying for strength to remain faithful? I believe they could have been victorious in the moment of temptation had they prayed. But they failed to see the need. They failed to grasp the situation at hand. And as disciples, we must realize that we do not need to be defined by our failures. 
If we fail, we must repent. Judas, could he have repented? It's an interesting question. Difficult to answer. Jesus did say that it would have been good for him if he would have never been born. So was Jesus saying that when he got when Judas betrayed his Lord that he was beyond hope, or was Jesus talking from his all knowing, from an all knowing perspective that knowing that Judas was not gonna repent, and therefore it was better for him not to be born? I don't know. Perhaps he could have repented, but he did not. It seems Satan had control of him due to his unrepented sins. The deeper we get into sin, the harder repentance is. If we fall into sin, don't believe the Satan's lie that it wasn't a big deal. Or to put, it off, put repentance off. Don't deal with it now. Deal with it later. But later may never come. Judas was sorry for the results. But he did not humble himself and repent. And he was lost. But we can repent. We can get back on the right track. Jesus said to Peter, When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now I'm not sure what Peter, in his own confidence, thought when Jesus said, When thou art converted. I'm sure he thought he was exactly where he ought to be. But there was a lot that Peter did not understand. I think it would be accurate to say that Peter was not a Christian at this time. Because after all, Jesus had not even been sacrificed yet. When thou art converted, Peter was not where he needed to be. And sometimes God has to let us fail... To learn it our way does not work, because we just can't get it otherwise. And Peter was given hope before he failed. Jesus told Peter, when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. He was given hope if he paid attention to it. If he thought about that when he went out and wept bitterly, that he would come through it and there was hope for him. To still be victorious. Looking at Peter, at some point, Jesus had a special meeting with period with Peter. The meeting is not recorded for us, other than what Paul records in First Corinthians fifteen verse five. Paul said, talking to Jesus. And that he was seen of Cephas, Cephas being Peter, and then of the twelve. We're not given any details as to what went on in that meeting or when it occurred, what was said. But it appears that Jesus had a special meeting with Peter at some point before he appeared to the rest of the disciples. We don't, like I say, we don't know what was said. But we do know that Peter not only maintained his position as a disciple, but it seems he was put in charge of leading the rest. We see a little bit of this in Acts in Acts. Acts one fifteen. It's totally off the subject other than to see that Peter was the leader. In those days Peter stood up in the midst of all the disciples. I think we'll stop there. But Peter stood up. He took charge. And then on the day of Pentecost, chapter 2, verse 14, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell in Jerusalem, be it known unto you, and hearken unto my words. And we'll stop there. But Peter appears to be the main disciple at this point. So why had Peter, why had Jesus spoken directly to Peter? It appears that Jesus gave Peter charge of the disciples. 
Peter was an outspoken natural leader. And Jesus had plans for him once he was converted. When Peter's natural abilities were put under the lordship of Jesus, he was powerful for his Lord. And given Jesus' charge to strengthen his brethren, it appears possible that Peter helped the others at some point to see the truth once Jesus was gone. Perhaps in that meeting with Jesus, Jesus told him some things so he could help the other disciples along. We don't fully know what all Jesus meant, telling Peter to strengthen his brethren. But we know he was given the charge and we believe that he would have done so. And for what it's worth, I believe we read more about Peter in, the, in Acts than about than the, other than the other disciples. But looking at the other disciples, all of them came back stronger than ever. They all ran when Jesus was when Jesus was arrested. To his credit, John was did come back at some point, and he was there at the crucifixion. But all those disciples, history tells us, were martyred, except for John. And John also stood firm to the end, and we can be blessed by his writings as an old man. We do not need to fail in order to be used mightily for God. But if we do, we can learn from those mistakes and emerge stronger than ever, just as the disciples did. So as disciples, we need to realize that Satan is a very real enemy who wants to bring about our spiritual ruin. God has given us the tools we need to be victorious in the battle. Jesus is our perfect example how to overcome temptation, and he is interceding on our behalf. And when we fail, we can learn from our mistakes. We do not need to be defined by them. We can still be used mightily for God. May God bless.